You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knesset, and welcome to episode 160, uh, another milestone. We got another 10 in the bank here. So. They're all milestones. And we're milestones. still in the, uh, the, the time warp, the podcasting time warp where <laughs> we're talking in early-ish mid-May. And this isn't going to come out probably until I think it's either June. last week of May or first week of June. June, yeah. So it's a... It's, uh, when people are listening, it's probably slightly warmer than it is now, yes. and I'm there's com- things some more in bloom. Your your early spring stuff has faded away. So this is a yeah. this is a weird luxury for us because we've never had this much of a buffer, and it just seems odd. And I'm starting to get lost in time. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, has become a common uh, occurrence here on our podcast is Fran throws me a curveball when he's editing oh. something. Oh, what did and I do? When he edits the, you, oh, you oh. see. <laughs> <laughs> so our last Sorry. guest was uh, was Captain Al Majeski from the American Literal Society, yeah. and uh, and Fran forgot to take Captain out. So today I'm introducing Captain Uli <laughs> L- Lorimore from the Native Plant Trust. And, I'll take uh, it. Yeah. yeah. So, Uli, why that. don't you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself, how you got to the Native Plant Trust, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, so I'm Uli Lorimer. I'm the Director of Horticulture for Native Plant Trust. Um, just want to begin by saying it's a pleasure to be here and thanks for inviting me on the show. Um, I've been up at Native Plant Trust now for four years um, as director. Previously worked at the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens in um, beautiful New York City for 14 years as curator of Native Flora. Um, had previous stint at Wave Hill, also in New York, for about five years and then started off my public horticulture career at the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. Um, hard to believe, but uh, over 22 years ago, which is wow. kind of crazy. Time uh, flies. A long yeah. time ago. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, thinking about your career, you know, one of the first things, you know, you're dealing with native plants now. What that was, I guess, was that always like a love or a focus or is that something that you kind of shifted to over time? as as your career progressed um i think it was a a little bit of a a gradual shift i mean um i can say that um my i I credit my green thumb from my mother and my my my, uh, mom's mother so my grandmother in germany they both had uh, my mother's still alive still has a beautiful garden and that was always you know as childhood lots of memories spending time out there and uh, i grew up in wilmington delaware and i was always the kid who wanted to know what kind of tree it was or like what was hiding underneath the log and i think you know i was just drawn to that um we used to go to longwood gardens all the time because it was like 10 minutes away from where i lived um, and then when I went to University of Delaware to study horticulture, um, my, one of my independent studies was creating new labels for their native plant section in their little botanic garden. And so that, I think, kind of inched me in that direction. Um, I think as I've learned more about plants, I have an appreciation for all plants in, in, and respect, even for even for our, the invasive ones, the ones that we like to vilify. Um, but I, I feel like the the 
sort of the value of of native plants and what they mean in context and ecosystems and and in sort of healing our damaged landscapes is what has continually drawn me deeper into this particular work. Um, and I think that my time at Brooklyn Botanic Garden really sort of crystallized the approach that uh, that I'm taking now. And so, you know, it's been a good nearly 20 years, 18 years in, in that direction. Um, but, you know, I love anything green and even the plants <laughs> that don't make chlorophyll. So I completely <laughs> appreciate that. It's it's I, I'm coming up on my 35th year in the industry. I've been at Pinelands coming up on 16 years. But I really only got it the way I get it now, maybe in the last three years. I'd, I'd say since the podcast because it yeah. – like I got it. I understood it. I was on board. But it wasn't yeah. until we started having these conversations that it kind of turned the volume up to 11 on it. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate the, all the other years in ornamental hort. You, the one thing you can't deny is people's passion towards plant material, whether mm-hmm. it's native, non-native, or invasive. And there's something totally. about that emotional connection that you can't deny and you can't refute either. You can't tell someone that they're wrong. Yeah. You may want to. <laughs> well, you know, or maybe flip it and say, you know, maybe consider this as a different approach um, instead of, you know, saying, oh, this is wrong or I don't agree. Um, but, you know, it's one of the, you know, this is a, a an industry where the knowledge is cumulative and it's built year after year mm-hmm. and, and it's very hands on. And so after you've grown something many, many seasons in a row, you get this really deeper and fuller appreciation for for it as an organism, as it's, you know, in its own right. Um, especially if you grow things from seed, I think it's sort of this really wonderful circle of starting with the seed and nurturing it and getting it up to when it can be mature and flower and make it seed again and starting that cycle again mm-hmm. and again and again. Um, I find that really fulfilling and really rewarding. And it's, yeah. and even that process has changed over time. Sorry if I'm getting so far off topic. Oh, it's but, okay. You we know. knew this one was going to. <laughs> uh, in fact, when I first um, saw Uli at a presentation in, I don't remember where we were. It was some in February this year. Yeah, it was in February, but I don't remember where it was. I was all over in February. Baltimore. It was Baltimore, yeah. PPA in Baltimore. I, I had literally um I'd been in Nashville for a meeting and landed at I think like eleven PM, didn't wow. get home until uh like midnight, something like that. Fell asleep, woke up at four to drive down to Baltimore for that next meeting. So I kind of forgot. Yeah. But um but, but you said hey, I can get as controversial as you want to get. So I'm no, I'm okay but, going wherever we want. But where I, where I was going was even the processes have changed yeah. and changed for the better. A native plant nursery 20 years ago didn't necessarily look at the best practices for growing a native plant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there was, you know, chemical use has changed. Um, uh, just a more, not saying that it's organic, but it's a, a more natural approach to how you mm-hmm. do this to replicate things, which. Uh, nurseries 25 years ago, whether it was a native nursery or non native nursery, was you know, all maintain the same practice as if it was a farm mm-hmm. uh, yep. because many of these nurseries were farms that, that kind of transitioned into plant stock as a, as a crop. Yep. Um, yep. So it, even that has changed. And sometimes I feel a little bit like a dinosaur because Tom will ask my opinion, like we're, we're going through something. How should we handle it? Well, what, when I dealt with that kind of thing 20 years ago, it's you wouldn't – there is no way you would handle it the same way. <laughs> that is something – that is a good point, Frank, because yeah. there's a lot of times I say, hey, what would you do in this scenario? And uh, not just to yeah. Fran, but other people who have been in the nursery industry for a long time are like, well, 
20 years ago, I would have sprayed some crazy thing that's banned now. I can't, but you can't even buy it, let alone we wouldn't even want to use it. Yeah. So, but it's building on that, that knowledge base every day. And each year you come with a little bit more uh, in the pocket and then you still get frustrated when it doesn't work. So, yeah. It's it's one of the things I love about horticulture in general too that you you're allowed to make mistakes and you can learn from them and and you know try not to repeat the mistakes but you know that you're always reevaluating and looking at can I do this better is there a, you know a, maybe a more environmentally friendly way of doing it or more efficient and um, it just it it kind of fosters a little bit of a spirit of innovation which I really love too. Yeah. I, I love that too. And you have everyone you, – you have the whole spectrum of – you know we we love that people are seeing an opportunity selling native plants and not growing invasives. But then you still have the people that rely on invasives and they don't see the need to stop selling those plants. So it kind of runs the spectrum. But I think the industry as a whole keeps taking baby steps closer to – to yes. doing the right thing you know yeah. this this whole emphasis on babies <laughs> yes <Yeah>. baby <laughs> yeah. i mean but people know what neonics are uh now and True. and why why you shouldn't necessarily use them um and i love that that's public and more accepted and and more nurseries are seeing the need to go in that direction uh which 15 years ago i don't know if that conversation's happening or people are gonna have yeah. whatever you know i'll use it until they ban it Right. Um, right. So I'm I'm happy at least that's moving in that direction. Yeah. But I digress. <laughs> we 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 wanted to talk about what the Native Plant Trust is and the, and the work that they do. And if you could tell our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with that what what it is that the Native Plant Trust does. Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, Native Plant Trust is the first conservation organization, plant conservation organization in the country. Um, In two years, we'll be celebrating our 125th anniversary, which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, But we formally started as an organization in uh, 1900 um, and have always been focused on plant conservation um, and um, the, our, our, headquarters and sort of flagship property is called garden in the woods it's in framingham massachusetts um and it is a 45 acre botanic garden uh, and also as i said headquarters for the organization and so we um um run basically a a three-legged stool out of this place which is one leg is plant conservation um we have a now nearly 30-year program um, called the New England um, uh, Plant Conservation Program, or NEPCOP for short. Um, and it's a program where we work with all of the six states in New England, all of the natural heritage bureaus, federal entities, um, you know, land trusts and so forth to track and monitor the rarest and most endangered taxa that exist in the region. Uh, and so we've got about 30 years of monitoring data. Um, we also have uh, what I think is probably the most valuable room here in uh, on, on campus here is a seed bank that has um, nearly 30 years of rare plant seed collections. Um, and so we've got Nearly 75% of the 389 taxa uh, banked, 
um, which is a, a real feather in our cap. Um, in order to do this, we also engage in a, a um, volunteer citizen science program that we call our Plant Conservation Volunteers, or PCVs. Um, over that third, third, you know, thirty-year span, we've trained probably close to sixteen hundred volunteers, and we have about yearly somewhere between four to 500 volunteers active. So these are folks who, let's say, you know, we're tracking a plant that exists in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. They live nearby and they can pop in on the populations on their own time and check in and collect data. And of course, they all go through pretty rigorous training to, to get into this. But it's really a wonderful program because um, so many people are really energized and engaged and excited to um, do something for plant conservation. Um, so that's that's one side of what we do. Um, then we have a public programs uh, department where we offer about 150 to 200 online courses every year, including um, certificates in uh, basic botany and advanced certificates in landscape design and uh, and um, you know botany and plant ID, along with a lot of you know sort of one off. Uh, courses that have anything to do with ecological horticulture, plant conservation, um, you know, insect, bird life, mushrooms, how it all, you know, trying to tie it all together. Um, and then our horticulture department, um, we obviously maintain this um, uh, botanic garden here. Um, it's been in existence as, as a botanic garden since the 30s. Uh, and then we also operate a nursery facility in Western Massachusetts called Nasami Farm, um, where we produce uh, plants all grown from wild collected seed, um, uh, and of course all local uh, local ecotypes. Um, and that services our retail arm, um, display purposes at the garden, as well as any kind of contract growing that we might do for land trusts, um, organizations like National Park Service. Um, you know, pretty broad strokes. Um, and so we have, we have our little pinky toe in the restoration world, so to say. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's, you know, that's kind of the broad strokes of what Native Plant Trust does and is. I, I have a question for each leg of that stool, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for the, the rare plant collection, what is the state of that as of today? Is it are there more things being added to it? Are we making progress? Are you finding more things having that um, how they occur in the wild less often, or are things being encroached upon? Is it is it stable, or is it an up uphill battle? Um, I think it's still, I think overall, an uphill uphill battle. Um, we so in I don't know the exact date, but. Um, I want to say maybe 2010, we published uh, a report called Flora Conservanda. And what this did is it looked, we got, you know, 30 botanists in a room together from all the different states and looked at all the rankings and assessments and sort of took a snapshot of what is rare, what the trends are based on the data that we've collected over this 30-year period, um, what are the priorities, and that helps each state uh, adjust the state rankings, um, you know, likely in many cases, things going from like S3, S2 down to S1 as habitat is lost and so forth. Um, some things, um, uh, there's a few uh, cases of successes, um, but mostly things becoming rarer. 
Um, and we're currently in, in the process of revising Flora Conservanda and hope to have it published probably through um, Rodora, which is the Journal of the New England Botanical Society, um, maybe the end of this year, early next year. Awesome. And so that's, again, another sort of, a, you know, another 10-year uh, chunk in which the flora has changed. And so new things are being listed, new things are being discovered. Um, you know, just for example, we, we discovered a population of um, velvet panic grass, Dicanthelium scoparium, um, which is pr- pretty common down in Jersey. Um, but just one population, I believe, or a handful of populations, and it's currently being proposed to be listed and added to, um, to Massachusetts list of endangered plants. So, you know, new discoveries are always exciting. Um, and the other sort of success I would say is that, um, it was two, three years ago, pre pandemic now, um, one of our PCVs discovered a, uh, enormous population of American chaff seed, which is Schwalbia Americana. It's federally listed. It does uh, exist in New Jersey, and it was part of part of the work I did for Brooklyn Botanic Garden was tracking some of those populations. Um, this plant hadn't been recorded in Massachusetts since 1953, and they discovered a population with over a thousand genets um, in in you know uh, uh, on a airfield strip so you know somebody had been mowing it to keep the mm-hmm. vegetation low what it was sort of incidental management practices that led to this you know amazing plant population um, persisting and now it's like not extirpated from massachusetts anymore it's back on the map and those are kind of success things that we can that we can point to those are awesome success. and the american chaff seed was actually someone's pick for uh their favorite native plant at the end yes. friend you remember who was it uh Jay Kelly. Peter Groffman? Not Peter Groffman, not Jay Kelly. It was uh, Dr. Dwayne Estes. Oh, SGI. That was his. And then it was one I wasn't familiar with at the time. And I remember looking it up and I remember seeing that uh, there's a population that was in, I think, Tabernacle, New Jersey, or Chatsworth, New Jersey, not too far from where we're we're sitting right now. And I remember (laughs) that, yeah, it was incredibly rare, except for New Jersey and then the, the new. Population that was found recently, in and then it's it's down in um, South Carolina yep. and Georgia and Florida um, is you know the 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 sort of bulk of its range, yeah. but yeah. Um, very cool plant, you know, hemiparasitic, um, mm-hmm. just uh, just a neat looking thing. So yeah, oh, yeah. it's awesome. Um, I I remember someone chose it. I couldn't remember who it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So going to the education leg of of the stool, are you finding? Finding a growing interest, or, or are there? Are you finding you have to offer more classes or more education because the interest is is there? So, um, we had um, transitioned a lot of our um, course offerings to online before the pandemic hit, um, and it was really out of the the recognition that you know while we're physically located here in central Massachusetts, um, we operate in all six states. And it's really hard for somebody who lives all the way up in Maine or something to drive all the way down here to take a class. And so we had already got kind of got the wheels spinning to to offer everything online. And we were so well positioned 
when everybody was stuck at home to really see this, you know, you know, it was like a 25, 30% growth in registrations and online wow. courses wow. every year of the pandemic from 2019, 22, 21, all the way through till now. And it's folks from, you know, uh, Ohio and the Midwest and people in the Southeast. We were even getting people from Europe and South Africa, South America tuning in that would have, you know, mm-hmm. we would never have had that kind of a broad reach. And so it's, it's, you know, it kind of illustrates the power of the virtual platform. The other flip side of the coin is that, you know, you, it's really hard to translate hands-on education like seeing an actual physical plant and learning plant ID as you can touch it and look at it in the garden into a, into an on, online platform. So that that's sort of the, you know, the catch 22 of it. There's, you know, the interest is definitely there. The registrations are, you know, through the roof. Um, and now our challenge is how to adapt the virtual platform as best as we can mm-hmm. to, uh, to try to make it as, as you know, as, as a, an engaging an experience if you're looking through a screen as if you could actually, you know, stick your nose into a trillium erectum and get that delicious <laughs> fragrance. Um, you know, that's something we don't think we can reproduce, but no, I, you know, try. I appreciate this part of what you do because, and we talked about it before we went on air is just framing things in a positive light and people are coming away with the correct, uh, I think the correct view of, of how these things should be looked at. And we, we talk about all the time some of the, the bad behavior we see in certain um, social media groups. Um, that's, <laughs> we were just talking about we it the other day. All, all the time. You know, and, and having our own Facebook group for this, and we just had a, a influx of new members. And, you know, it's funny that the outside perspective of people coming into, even though you think everyone's behaving kind of well you get some you start getting some outside perspectives and you're like oh you know maybe maybe this even needs to be tightened up a little bit like it's uh which is a good thing you always have to keep looking at it you always have to keep adjusting it you always have to keep moving forward but i appreciate the educational reach that's framed in such a way that people are walking away in a very positive manner from it and that's not always the case no and that's that's really key for us and and it's something that you know as as a person who's, you know, deep in it with decades of experience, it's sometimes hard to appreciate the perspective of someone who's new to the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I try not to approach um, these conversations with a whole lot of assumptions, like, you know, maybe they don't know what an ecotype is or like, you know, these things that you and I might take for granted because Mm -hmm. we've been doing it for so long. Um, And I think that the, the ability to leave somebody with like a, a favorable impression is all about a positive and welcoming message and not, not having it, you know, I'm not trying to lecture you. I'm not trying to position myself as somehow more knowledgeable or better than your choices. Just saying, here's this information. And, you know, I think a, um, an educated visitor or consumer will be able to make the right choice far more than somebody who is unaware of the, complexity of issues or the nuances that are there totally you only get that yeah. one chance at a first impression and it's it's wonderful that they're getting that great first impression from you um totally third leg and this is actually a two-prong question is um what are your challenges in supply for the native plant nursery in in getting the plants that people want into their hands and 
you know, we're fans of local ecotype. We would just love to hear why you feel local ecotype is important. Mm-hmm. And is it is it as the the industry as a whole, is it too broad or too narrow or both at the same time, depending on what you're looking at? Well, and so I think that the it, currently I think the horticulture industry is still very broad and still very mm-hmm. focused on aesthetics, you know, and I, I look at some of the periodicals that I receive um, and I look and I try to get a lot of magazines because it's interesting to see, you know, who, who bought ad space and what are they promoting mm-hmm. and, yeah. and what are like this year's hot plants, you know, sorry, the visitors didn't see me make air quotes. <laughs> yeah. in my hands, but, uh, I, um, I'm just going to put that in there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's on some level, it's just kind of repackaging things that already exist out there. But um, I think for us, the, 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 message of trying to elevate ecological function and value uh, and have that weighed equally with aesthetics is the way forward. Um, And um, I think that, you know, the knowing where plants come from makes sense. If you can talk about how the, all the other life that interacts and that's interconnected with the plant itself or the plant community, um, is all subject to the same sort of timing and, and, and like all, all these complex relationships that we can't necessarily see. And that when you begin bringing in things from other places, the timing is mismatched, the, the, um, the resource itself, whether it's a particular plant that provides a particular quality of pollen or nectar to a pollinator uh, is compromised or, you know, here's a here's foliage that we've we've selected to be dark maroon because it looks cool, but all the things that eat that particular plant can't begin with it because they don't recognize it as food anymore. It's that sort of thinking that that um, being intentional about supporting all the life is really the reason behind local uh, uh, um, local adaptations and and why local ecotypes are important. I would go further to say that. Um, one of the other, you know, elephants in the room here is climate change. And we get a lot of questions about, you know, should I plant a tree from Virginia and Massachusetts today because all the climate models say that by 2050 we're, it's going to feel like Virginia? And to which I would say that may be true, but we don't have to make it look like Virginia. <laughs> and I think that the, the – Right. I mean, you yeah. know, go, yeah. go, go back to, to, you know, Lady Bird Johnson, who, who famously quipped, let's keep Texas looking like Texas or mm-hmm. something like that. I may have yeah. misquoted her, but, um, but the, 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 the point is that, like, you're looking to embrace what makes your region special and distinct from, you know, it's why New Jersey doesn't look like New York and it doesn't look like Massachusetts because there are these subtle differences in the landscape. And that's what we're trying to preserve. And I think that the uh, embracing the genetic diversity that's here already will allow those plants to be able to adapt rather than trying to, you know, garden the wild, so to say, by bringing it forward and introducing things. Now, pragmatically, you know, thanks to mail order, people have been bringing stuff from all over the place anyway. And this is one of the things that I'm always keen to point out that um, practice has already far outstripped what research is telling us is happening and uh, mm-hmm. but you need to be aware of that um, to be able to make more informed choices. Yeah. yeah. For us, getting back to sorry, one more question there. The 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 biggest challenge is seed availability of seed for us in terms of our nursery supply. 
you know, and the other usual things as a nonprofit, you know, sufficient labor and, and, and other resources play into why we don't produce more. But the bottom line is that there's not enough available seed. That's we, I, I just had this conversation literally yesterday afternoon with our, our propagator and on some of the properties, you know, we collect all on mostly private, private property. And we were talking about the age of some of the people. You know, one of our contacts is getting ready to retire in the next three years. And a couple places that are very important to us, we, we may only have one contact. And what does that mean? If we were to lose these two places as a whole, our nursery would be a completely different place <laughs> in in the next five years, you know, and how important it is to have these sources, but collect responsibly, have a um, a hand in, in wanting those those sites to succeed and produce and become better, not leave it worse for what it is. And it's as time goes on with development and other things, it gets increasingly harder to be able to to do that kind of work and and supply enough plant material to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on that you said too was how um, well with mail order you have stuff that's coming in from all over the place, but even with uh, your normal garden center, that there's more and more interest in native plants, and the garden centers aren't necessarily looking at ecotype and all. That. They're they're just going to their normal outlets and saying, "Well, what native plants do you have?" And um, and sometimes you're lucky enough to to get uh, get something that's at least native to your area. But even the ecotype could be a lot of these plants have really broad ranges. A lot of the this was something that was fascinating when I found out. You have a lot of native species, or, um, U.S. native species, that are then taken by some of these big uh, seed companies that are based out of uh, of Europe, um, mm-hmm. and then they're doing all kinds of breeding over there, and then sending them back here. So it's a native mm-hmm. species here, like Monarda didima is one that always comes to mind. I can't remember the cultivar name, but it's so it's a U.S. species, but all the breeding was done in Holland. And then, then it's yep. brought back here, and uh, and then still sold as a native species in a sense, yep. and all so. all clones of one another. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, so. but we, you know, we internally have this dilemma too. Tom and I have the discussion. Like, I love Amsonia, but it's really only native to three counties in Arkansas. Do I do I put it in my do I put it in my property? Even though I survives here, like I planted oak leaf hydrangea, its natural range isn't this far north. Mm-hmm. So even though mm-hmm. I know the right thing to do. I'm still <laughs> pushing the boundaries of is that right or is it wrong and and at what point is it okay and I don't know that answer and I don't know that you can say that's wrong to do or that's right to do it's yeah. I I I kind of justify it by saying well it's not a non-native even though it's not native to this area and it's not an invasive yeah. Well, I think that the key here and as I see the as the real next and these are these are like achievable steps for the nursery yeah. industry and it all revolves around transparency. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it's it's transparency in propagation techniques. So, you know, if people see a plant name, do they know that it's patented and therefore cloned? Do they know that it's a selection from the wild and maybe it comes true from seed? Or uh, if it is a selection from the wild and it comes true from seed, where was it selected from? Mm-hmm. Like none of that information is is 
at all available. And, you know, I tried to find this for, for a talk. I had to troll through patent applications to find information yeah. about mm-hmm. parentage and where, you know, where did so-and-so find this plant and what did they do with it to get to produce this particular mm-hmm. selection or cultivar? Um, I think all of that, and, and then provenance, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Fran, but, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, people started things smaller and grew them all the way on and then sold them. And now we're in in an industry where, you know, you've got people that specialize in liners and they sell them really cheap and then they get sent out to a wholesaler that then pots them up or so forth. And then that gets sold on to a retailer and that whole documentation chain of where that plant came from is completely broken. Mm -hmm. It, it gets lost and, and you know, it, you can control it if you're collecting the seed and you're growing it on, you know, uh, you know, but you can find straight species being grown bare root locally, but where that seed source came from or where that chain is that you can't even get those answers sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and when you do get the answers, you don't, you don't want the answer. <laughs> you're like, oh, that's not what I was hoping for. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I've had the, the opportunity throughout my career to work for two very large nurseries um, that – we're rooted in natives, like Princeton Nurseries, rooted in natives. We we grew from seed all the way out, but also had so many patents uh, that it was unreal. And when I worked at the Connor Pyle Company, they owned more patents than any other nursery. Yep. But yep. they had a focus on natives. They love natives, and they were the first ones to say that I remember, hey, lithrum is appearing to be invasive. We need to stop growing it. Miscanthus is appearing to to escape yep. uh Yep. We need we need to stop and and we did a lot of straight species natives, but the patent arm of that nursery made more money than the rest of the nursery. At, yep. at Princeton, those patents, those companies made more money than you did actually producing plants to sell. So I yep. understand like by speaking out against it. Tom keeps saying I'm going to wake up not and not come to work one day. <laughs> yeah. Between yeah, speaking about <laughs> yeah, yeah, between talking about honey, yeah, yeah. honey as a business and yeah. and uh, cultivars, yeah. but I'm not I'm not poo pooing them. I'm not saying you know. If, I, I still my attitude has really changed. It's if if a cultivar is someone's gateway into it, I'll take that over time if they can learn. All right, I started with this. This is doing better, but I can even do better by doing this. Yeah, um, absolutely. But it is really a, a marketing arm that has so many dollars behind it. I don't know if the only way you can stop it is for people to stop buying those plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and it's, I mean, I, I think you, you know, I, I always look at the analogy of like, you know, the local Ace Hardware versus a Home Depot. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you can't, you know, maybe there's somebody who values supporting the local business enough, but they can't offer the volume discount that, you know, that a Home Depot can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's one of the biggest challenges facing native plant, the native plant industry and in sort of in, in, in terms of the nursery portion of it, um, you know, how do you compete against Connor Pyle or a Monrovia or, you know, really big, big, big name nurseries. And, um, you know, and even, even the smaller, as you pointed out, even the smaller nursery centers oftentimes just source their stuff from the same, you know, industrial Mm -hmm. scale production. Um, You know, we mentioned earlier neonicotinoids. I mean, this is another thing like, you know, be, be transparent about what you put on the plants even like proven winners is one that always gets me right. Proven winners says that all the liners they produce are not they're not made with or not treated with any 
neotinicanoids, but they say nothing about any of the partners that they send the liners to who then grow them up and put them in the pots that say proven winners. We had that same conversation with a nursery owner that says, my pra- even though I'm not certified organic, my practices are organic, and I'm not using neonicotinoids, but I buy that liner in, and I don't necessarily always know that that nursery's practices mm-hmm. when I get that material. So even though I'm not doing it, I'm not saying it hasn't happened somewhere down the line, and that's yes. just – Following the chain, and you can't expect the average homeowner buying plants, at least not right now. There's people thinking about it, but you can only get so far. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like researching your family tree. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I I don't know how much time and effort people are willing to go down that rabbit hole before they give up. Yeah, well, and I feel like the transparency also risks. Um, you know, information being put out there that some nursery. Uh, um, owners or, or producers don't want people to know about mm-hmm. that's why there's a resistance to it you know yeah. it's it's you know uh, i i think that the only way to push forward is you know to it's kind of like grassroots in in the same way um like i, I think there's some some interesting overlaps with um organic farming for example mm-hmm. you know and that um you know, a lot more people know what like an heirloom vegetable is now than they did before. And they know about community supported agriculture and they know about farmers markets and like all this small scale that's happening all over this country. And it's really fantastic. Um, and, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you would say, you want me to pay $5 for a tomato? Are you <laughs> kidding me? Like, and now you look at the thing and you're like, it's definitely worth it because, it's not grown. I'm putting this thing inside my body. So I know that it's going to be healthy for me. And I know it's going to taste way better than any, you know, mm-hmm. grocery store bought one because it was just picked the day before. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like native plants have sort of a similar, a similar, like, you know, local affinity. Um, and that you can, you know, you can say, you know, if you're so careful about what you put into your body, why don't you extend the same thing to all the other organisms that rely on that plant? Like you don't want to poison yourself with pesticides. Why would you want to do it to the insects, the butterflies, maybe the bird that eats the caterpillar is going to get a piece of that too. Um, and to support, you know, the broadest strength, you, you want to know that your seed didn't come from Georgia and then traveled to mm-hmm. Tennessee and then was sold to a, a wholesaler in Virginia that then shipped it up to New Jersey. And there you have it. Like, that's the same reason why people go to the farmer's market to get their salad instead of buying the clamshell that came from California. Yeah. Some people are going to care. Some people don't, you know, that's, you know, I'm not deluded into thinking we're going to change the world here, but. And that's a conversation, you know, that keeps happening. We, for example, like locally, oaks aren't really producing. They haven't for the last few years, a decent mast enough to collect enough to produce. And we've, we, we've had that conversation where it's like, all right, there's no swamp milkweed. We just won't have a crop this year. All right, second year, we won't have a crop this year. Third year, do we need to, do we need to outsource acorns for this? Like is there somewhere, yeah. somewhere close locally, locally collected that someone that we can trust where we know where they're coming from that is close enough? And we share that information with our customers if they call them and say, hey, I need to know the provenance of X, Y, and Z. And we're like, oh, yeah, this county, this county, we did it, we did it. Right. This one we had to bring in. It's a little further out. We understand if you yeah. don't want to use it. 
but it, it's an option, yeah, and if we tr- trying not to let uh, perfect be the enemy of good, you know. And so totally. I mean, uh, you know, you, you try the the to work within the eco regions or you know whatever provisional seed transfer zones that people are talking about. Um, and I think that gives you a, a broader geographic range to try to work within. Um, but absolutely, I agree with you. I mean, that's, you know, we don't live in a perfect world. And um, I think if you really take a step back, um, we're all doing fantastic work, even if it's not entirely perfect all the time. No, yeah. and, and we we kind of say all the time, there's not enough of us doing it. Like you would think that's crazy to invite more people to do this, but there really yeah. isn't enough, especially if you start breaking it down by ecotype. All right, if there's more people up north and we're not selling our material up north, maybe we have more material. Like there's definitely coming material coming into New Jersey from south. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have more people thinking that way, you're just shipping more locally than yeah. than elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, we want that entire pie to get bigger. We I always talk about why we started the podcast. That was one of the reasons we started the podcast, just so we kind of raise awareness so people realized the impact they could make locally um no matter what their passion was it didn't necessarily have to be all plants it could be insects or, or fishing or all different kinds of stuff um hiking yeah. but it all kind of tied back into these habitats which uh one of the foundations is the plants stay tuned for more of the native plants healthy planet podcast presented by Pinelands nursery Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I mean, hunt, hunting, too, is another mm-hmm. one I feel yep. like, you know, you, if you love hunting, you want to be out in, you know, good habitat because that's where the animals are going to be. Yep. Um, but I do want to bring back to something you were saying earlier, Fran, about the kind of people aspect of, of all of this. And it, and I, I think it's it's um, a sort of troubling um, the 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 pipeline, so to say, of of younger folks getting in, in interested in this and being competent as seed collectors, for example, um, there's less and less. I mean, we have we have the same issue with with we have a couple contracts seed collectors um, for us, and they're wonderful. And but you know they're they're getting older, and you know less able, less willing to get out there. Um, and what do you do with the things that you always relied on this person to, to source for you? Um, it's really troublesome. And, I, and, you know, it goes back to, to, you know, maybe university programs. I don't know how else to get people interested in a, a career in, in this kind of work and really demonstrating that it is economically viable to do and incredibly rewarding you know, and it's not, you're not, you're not going to be able to afford a Porsche doing this, but you're going to go see, you're going to see some things that few other humans have been able to see. And I feel like that's, that's got to be the hook. There's a, there's a gap in the employee chain where when I started, I didn't go to college and there were plenty of, there were college graduates, but there were plenty of people that, that had just worked in the industry their entire lives and were willing to share that information with the right people uh, and pass it along and you worked your way through. Um, it's kind of hard when you're spending $80,000 on an education now <laughs> to come in and say, oh, this yeah. is all I'm going to make. This is this is difficult. You're missing that that link where 
that information is being passed down to the next generation. There's somewhere we missed a generation um, and that information is kind of dying and not being passed on. We've been uh, – our system – we've we've been advertising for an assistant propagator for over yeah. a year, two years. Mm-hmm. We have yeah. – our propagator is one of the best propagators in the, in the industry. Like this as a learning curve to be able to learn from one of the best before he retires, yeah. we can't get yeah. – we can't yeah. get an applicant. Well, I'd rephrase that because we a, a we've qualified, gotten, yeah like, we've got well app- there's a lot of people who want to get into it because they like nature, they like gardening, um, but for that position in particular, we're looking for someone who's who has a little bit more experience yes. than the applicants that have yeah. been, yeah. been coming yeah. in. Um, but yeah, I, that's it's an interesting conundrum. Is the, yeah. the folks who have more of a horticultural background aren't necessarily going into native plants. Um, But you have a lot of people who don't like have their experience with horticulture has mainly been uh, from a hobby standpoint and they're really into native plants and they want to learn more. And um, yeah. But you also need that next generation to infuse you with new technology, new practices, bring Mm -hmm. something new to the table and embrace the old. And it's, there's this like, just weird gap in between where yeah. it's not happening. Yeah, I, I sometimes question about how how much of a learning curve can you accept to to try to bring people in. Yeah, um, and sometimes it feels like you're looking for a unicorn. You know, you're looking for that person who's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, like I, I used we we used to joke about the the rare breed of double nerd. You'd be like tech savvy <laughs> and and know about plants. <laughs> you're like wow like who is that person do they exist um and you know when you find them you're like wow this is great you know do everything yeah. you can to hold on to them and yeah. you know i find for for us here and, and and our our approach to horticulture is so very different than traditional horticulture or anything you would that you would learn at a more mainstream botanic garden um and so there's already a little bit more of a learning curve to bring people up to speed with, with, you know, how do we, how do we pray, approach maintenance of, of the mm. grounds? How do we approach, um, you know, bringing new plants into the collection and onto the grounds? We're not just shopping at mail order catalogs. Um, and a lot of this also reflects an evolution as we were talking before, you know, uh, um, there was a time where horticulture here was interested in, in, Plant breeding, and, and there was a couple a uh, couple of cultivars um, that were released, um, and then uh, our nursery at one point was also you know buying liners in from Tennessee and potting them up, and 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 we were really applying a much more narrow definition and scope in terms of what we think is regionally appropriate or ecotypic based based on this eco regions concept. And for us, if we want to, if I want to include something new in, in, uh, in the garden, we want to go see it in the wild first and we mm-hmm. want to collect it from the wild and then figure out how to grow it best and then produce like a hundred or 500 to put on display and bring it in that way. But that requires sometimes three, four years from if you really need, if we could grow that to like, here it is in the garden. Yeah. And that's yeah. like that level of patience just is sometimes hard. Um, no, but it, it, it's hard but important because if you want people to follow your lead, you have to walk the walk, and and those steps aren't easy steps to take sometimes. They do take time, and it takes patience, and it's – hopefully when it's all said and done, it's worth it, and everyone sees why the effort is important. 
and you yeah. can't do it unless you're unless you're doing it you know yeah so it's there you know speaking of which with some of the former uh philosophies to today native plant trust wasn't always a name there was a name change what was the 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 reasoning behind the name was that part of it um no it was it so um we used to be known as new england wildflower society um and that name had been uh, in use from you know, early 70s up until um 2019 i think um and then before that it was the new england wild or wildflower preservation society and then i think we started off as the society for the preservation of wildflowers or something like so some iteration of that combination of words and we felt that it didn't really reflect the full breadth of what the organization did um you know it, we would get kind of silly questions like you know do you guys do stuff with trees and ferns i mean it says wildflowers so um, it's also an awful lot, you know, like try to do a radio spot with New England Wildflower Society. We're, you know, it's just a, it was a lot of, a lot of, just a lot of words and syllables. And so Native Plant Trust seemed a little bit uh, more concise and I think um, a little bit more in, in indicative of the breadth of activities that we do mm-hmm. from conservation, education, and, and public horticulture. Um, and so that was the reason behind um, the name change, um, you know, as we'd been known as New England Wildflower Society for, you know, close to 40 years. So um, I, I was I was curious with we, we talked about like increased amount of interest from people that know this and love it. it we, we find the voices get louder on both sides. Do you do you what are some of your obstacles that that you kind of stumble against in spreading that native plant? It seems like for the. The amount of people that you have with a growing love of native plants, I find the people that don't that that feel kind kind of we're spreading like some kind of magic that their voice is getting just as loud. Um, do you have obstacles in that way, um, or is it is it all? Hey, we we keep getting more people. We're spreading the right message. We're moving forward. Um, I mean, I think we we do keep attracting folks, and 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 more people are hearing it. I think that that our biggest obstacles are um, that the message isn't being spread widely enough or that the right people aren't hearing it. Um, And, and so, you know, I think about all of the public speaking that I do and it's almost always at native plant conferences and it's sort of like preaching to the choir there, you know, everybody who's there is already on board with the message, but um, I would love to talk more with, you know, uh, nursery and landscape associations or real estate uh, conferences where people who design new subdivisions and they've got their same go-to landscape architect that puts in the same 25 plants and little meatballs and that. And and what, what they don't understand is that they, they're crafting an aesthetic that is so entrenched in this country Mm -hmm. around uh, and, and it's and it's an aesthetic that that uh, you can draw a direct line to formal gardens in Europe, all right? So people want clean lines, mulch, clipped hedges that kind of look like you know the hedges you see in the fancy English garden magazines, uh, and color and lots of color and and better yet, a garden that does all that 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 I don't have to interact with or do anything to. Um, and throw on top of that our obsession with lawns and 
that what, what I get so frustrated with is that, you know, I drive around and like the shopping center has all the same boring plants in it and the corporate park looks neat, neat and tidied up like it was designed in the 50s and many of the residential neighborhoods here you know where where is the person turning their front yard into a pollinator habitat um very few because they're afraid to stick out mm-hmm. or there's some homeowner association stuff that's like you know slaps them on the wrist if they if they have a yard that's deemed un, unkempt or untidy mm-hmm. um all, all those things are like anathema to ecology. It wants to be messy. So how do you shift how do you shift the aesthetic towards a little bit wilder and looser and away from the formality? Yeah, That's we, a huge challenge. It, it, yeah. it is huge. And Tom sits actually sits <laughs> on the, the New Jersey Nursery Landscape yeah. Association board and it's amazing how many people kind of have their heels dug in um, because you know what? Because mm-hmm. it's their livelihood and it's oh, yeah. what they've built their whole career on and to to come back and say, hey, maybe I was wrong about this is a tough conversation to have with someone that you've been telling, you know, steering in a certain direction to say, ah, I was wrong, go in this direction. Yeah. Like I look at – like I drive around my my neighborhood and, and I can go to the local supermarket and it's completely landscaped with burning bush and barberry. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, how do you change that? Like it, where does that change start? Does it start with the landscapers? Because I've heard my neighbor have a conversation with the local with, – with who mows their lawn about plants, and he's giving his idea, but he's he's not an expert in plants. Mm-hmm. Um, he just mm-hmm. – he was – he saw an opportunity. Like I know the kid. He saw an opportunity to make money mowing lawns. So now he's the one giving advice about plants, but he's not really qualified to give that advice. Yeah, and it's it's funny because uh, we'll go on family walks in the development across the street from our house every once in a while, and um, I find it, like, infuriating. It's supposed to be relaxing. We're going on this family walk. I get so angry walking through this development because <laughs> it's burning bush, berberis, uh, green giant arborvitaes. Um, some of which have been pruned to look like seashells, which I feel like they're like spiral. Oh, very, very creepy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, and, uh, yes. and then the what really makes me like the most upset is all these trees are mulched at, at least like a foot up the the, oh, yeah, the, the trunk. Volcano. It's the like yeah. it's like the Mount Vesuvius of mulch volcanoes. Is the Krakatoa? They're yeah. enormous. <laughs> and, um, and and I like, I made a couple videos because I'm like I got to put this out there. And I'm like I probably shouldn't in being on the news inertia landscape board. I shouldn't be saying hey if your landscaper is doing this, you should probably look for a different landscaper because they don't know what they're doing. I, but, um, I hadn't said anything. I guess sorry, I said it now. Sorry so. to cut you off. Yeah. I hadn't said anything, but I'm working on a video that will come out. Yeah. I'll do it. it, but it's every time I see a weeping cherry planted five foot from the corner of a house, <laughs> I I take a small video yeah. and I'm gonna just do like a whole mess of them strung together, and then what a full size weeping cherry looks like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and and you're gonna end up moving, and that's just someone that you you're putting your faith in someone that you think are an expert, mm-hmm. and I I don't consider myself an expert, but it's just. Yeah. I, I don't want to just say these are all the things that are wrong. You want to do it in a positive manner, but sometimes you ha- the best way is just to show this is what you're planting here. This is, you know, this is what this tree will become. Yeah, and it's uh, I guess where I get frustrated. I'm looking at all this, and it's you're treating plants as lawn ornaments. Like you had a, a giant garden gnome is the equivalent of having that one uh, green giant that's next to your your doorway. 
it's it's an ornament and then I'll come back and look at my front yard which is wild and can look a little out of control at times but I know it's alive and I'll go up and I'll get close and there's insects all over the place and there's all kinds of things that utilize my garden that is not happening uh, across the street and um yeah oh, that's the whole thing yeah. and that's what and we had when we had uh, Melinda Soltis on to talk about homeowners association. The one letter she got was, "I can't imagine anyone would want to attract wildlife to their property." <laughs> and that's yeah. I was going to say, if you want insects, you know, there's a lot of people yeah. who are total like you know bugophobes that think you should be you know nuking everything that flies to death because it might sting me, bite me, or make me feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes spreading that number. This is a good segue. Sometimes spreading that number is working together, and I think mm-hmm. this is maybe a good time to talk about joining together together to spread a louder message and i see that with the northeast seed network and if 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 you would like to speak a little bit about that um i know we've mentioned it a little bit we've had eve allen on and and she's talked about it but that was really in the infancy of it yeah no i'd be happy to because we're really excited about this initiative and it's it's really gathering steam and momentum and interest um um, this year, um, we, so the Northeast Seed Network is a, uh, an effort that's being led by Native Plant Trust and Ecological Health Network with a lot of other partners, including Pinelands, um, that is looking to increase the availability of source identified genetically diverse seed for the use in landscapes in the Northeast. So this can be either for restoration projects or to feed into retail wholesale uh, um, nursery production, um, because we really believe that um, there's a great demand for this kind of plant material. uh, And there is no coordinated effort nor the proper infrastructure in place to be able to pull this off in our region. And that's what we're really trying to address. Um, it's, it's exciting because it also, uh, um, it also really represents, um, a much larger, broader platform. If we, if we bring all of our partners together, uh, and behind this message, I think we can really amplify it a lot louder than any one of us singly can. And I think that's really one of the, the amazing opportunities that this network represents. Aside from the actual product itself, the seed, uh, I think it's an opportunity not only to reach across the nurturing industry, the botanical garden industry, but um, we have some really exciting partnerships with the organic farming community here, which is another huge, uh, uh, um, you know, I'm just so excited about this particular partnership um, because I think – you know, agriculture and restorations have sometimes been at loggerheads a little bit about, um, you know, what, what do farms plant and, and how do they escape out and so forth. And I think that, again, there's this shift now in that um, we're finding ways to work together for the benefit of the planet, for the benefit of their crops, for the benefit of all the local ecosystems. So I'm really excited about that message getting out there. Um, and so, um yeah, this network will um, we're we're building at our at our nursery facility in um, in Western Massachusetts um, a much larger expanded um, seed uh, storage facility. In other words, so you know, cool dry storage and more freezer space for our 
rare plants, um, another facility for um, for bulk seed cleaning. And we're really going to try to lean into this idea of seed increase plots. I know this is something that you guys have been doing for quite some time now, uh, but it's been really largely absent in the sort of northern parts of the northeast, so in New England and other places. Um, and we're really looking to ramp that up because it's the only way in which we can meet the demand that's out there. Um, you know, aside from the issues of, of dwindling expertise, um, it is not sustainable to collect only from the wild. And if you start mm. with that mantra of doing no harm, um, there's no way that we can ever collect enough seed consistently from wild populations to grow the amount of plants or even provide you know, DOTs want thousands of pounds of seed. Like, where's that? You're not going to hand collect that from the wild. Um, and, this and, is, and if so, you mm-hmm. if you did, they wouldn't be willing to spend the money <laughs> for yeah. what you'd have to charge for. No. It. Yeah, you know, you'd need collection teams, and 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 you know, yeah, it's 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 not feasible. Well, I, so, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say we're really excited about this initiative because I think it's, you know, we're glad we're doing it now in hindsight, which should have been done 10 years ago. But, um, you know, we're trying to keep looking forward and 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 um, really trying to keep our eye on on filling this obvious um, or widening this bottleneck. So it's more like, you know, a highway instead of a yeah. single lane road. Well, it's it's sparking the conversation. And I love the fact that that conversation is also being had with the people that need to have the conversation with DOTs and uh, those types of uh, government entities that that are thinking in that manner. Mm-hmm. They're shifting from just turf and, and regular turf maintenance. The other thing I admire is that, that the Native Plant Trust is willing to take on this type of thing only because from us having done it, the amount of infrastructure and upfront money that goes into that before you can even really think about seeing – a profit is is hard. It's it's hard to take that leap knowing it's going to take a while to pay off because it's a lot of it. You start talking about seed cleaning and and plots and collecting. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. that's a lot of money put out before you see a return. Um, yeah, and it's it's we understand the commitment that you're making and we appreciate yeah. <laughs> appreciate that commitment because well, it's not I easy. Mean- I, I think I also need to, you know, need to thank our, you know, some of our very generous donors that are helping us do this, as well as um, the federal government. You know, we have a, we've got a really wonderful agreement with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that is helping us to get this network off the ground too, and it, and it points to the importance of, of you know, public-private partnerships in, in particularly in the Northeast, where you've got a landscape that has a relatively small percentage of land owned by federal entities and state entities, but the overwhelming majority is owned by private uh, individuals or land trusts and private organizations. And so um, I see that as one of the big challenges is really being able to coordinate all these different pieces in service of this mission. I love one of the things I noticed right away when you look at the the people are involved. One of the things I love seeing is that there are some nurseries involved that aren't your traditional native plant nurseries or, or places that aren't. And I love that they see this as an opportunity, but they could easily dig their heels in and fight against it. Uh, but they see it as this is a conversation we need to be a part of moving forward and how can we be a part of it and how can we do better. And it's it's some notable names on that list that's 
I, it's nice to see them moving in that direction and thinking in that manner. Um, and I don't know if that happens without the the Northeast Seed Network. Maybe yeah, eventually I mean, it does, it, but well, but uh, you know, this picking up on some of the earlier threads too. That I think that the you know the overall message is really beginning to filter out into more public. Uh, and broader audiences and broader spheres. And, um, you know, you can, you can look at this in any number of different ways, you know, um, that non-native plant nurseries are finally interested in is one certainly way. Um, you know, I gave a, I gave a talk for the garden clubs of America, their national meeting Mm -hmm. last year, uh, that was held in Boston and it was all about native plants. And I was like really surprised. They're like full bore behind this message, um, they're trying, in fact, they were successful in, in, um, designating this past April as national native plant month. Mm-hmm. And they're currently after, um, all of the governors in the states in which their clubs are active to permanently yeah. designate April as native plant month. I mean, this is all great messaging and like, you know, whatever you think about garden clubs, don't mess with those ladies. Man. They, are a, <laughs> they are a powerful group. And wonderful group that is really uh, um, not to be trifled with whatsoever. Yeah, and, and to follow up on that, I know it's uh, hard Garden, to trump passion. Garden yeah. Clubs of America they had a meeting in D.C. and uh, one of their speakers was Kyle Leibarger from Native Habitat Project, and uh, and Dr. Dwayne Estes was there as well. So I think mm-hmm. they actually went up together. But so they are still on that that push with native plants, and we've seen it across the nursery industry too. There's uh, uh my brother and I had a visit up in new England last week where, um, where is a, a large, uh, or not large nursery just interested, not just in, they actually did a lot with native plants already, um, mm-hmm. primarily cultivars, but they want to do a lot more with just species, native plants. And they're asking ecotype questions. Um, they didn't always agree with everything, but, but they yeah. were, they're thinking about it. Uh, and this is like again one of the, the larger nurseries on the East Coast. So um, yeah. there's the tide is starting to shift. Fran and I were talking about last week that native plants have been on every nursery and garden and like hot list for the the ten trends for for this next year. Native plants have been on that list for as long as I've been involved with yeah. the nursery last yeah. seven eight years, probably even longer. This is the first time I'm really seeing where. It, it's actually picking up steam. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it feels really good. I oh, yeah. Say. Yeah. It, it does. It really does. So for the sake of time, I'm going to move it for, we could, we're going to have to do a part two because I'm just looking <laughs> yeah, at, at what time it is. And I was like, we didn't even get to half the stuff. <laughs> I don't even know if we really looked at the questions. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I, I, I crossed <laughs> off a couple. That was it. But before we go to our last question, what can what are some of the goals for you personally and the Native Plant Trust moving forward? Is, is there some things that you're working towards that maybe haven't been announced yet, or or is there, um, um, you know, some near goals that you're hoping to see or 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 meet in the near future? Well, so um, first, you know, to really successfully launch this uh, this. Um, Seed network, I think, is the is the um, the primary challenge. You know, we're we're building the infrastructure this year, um, so hopefully by fall we'll have all of those facilities online and can actually begin, um, you know, accepting collections and really getting the ball rolling. Um, we're hiring a uh, uh, Northeast Network Seed Coordinator position. Uh, we've 
got we got a, a bunch of great candidates now. We just got to in my all my free time in the spring, I got to <laughs> find time to to schedule some interviews. But um, but no, so that that's moving along. I think other other than that, um, I'm really interested in in continuing to kind of hone in on what exactly ecological horticulture is and what does it mean in terms of um, your approach to to gardening, whether it's um, you know landscaping, kind of broadly writ with with uh, a lot of the folks that are um, maintaining landscapes in the region here. Um, what are maintenance practices that we can try to look at um, and really continue to hone in on why we think local adaptation is the key for the future and for the health of all the ecosystems. So, and that's going to kind of bear, bear itself out through, you know, interpretations and resources that we're going to develop here. Um, you know, maybe some more publications, um, you know, I, I wrote a book last year um, called uh, Native Plant Primer um, that Timber Press published, and um, it's been very well received, and it was really aimed at non-professionals, and so continuing to develop those kinds of resources, I think, is, is definitely in the works for the coming years. You know, it's it's funny that you say non-professionals. I was thinking even even for professionals, it's amazing, like, how easy it is to get lost in your work and, and lose that human element. Uh, even when you're dealing with ecology um, and just how to help spread that message. You know, one of the things I think we all need to look for if you're involved in this and you're passionate about it, we all have to, we kind of all owe it to the work that we do to do our part. And I love the book that you put out. And I think that sends a great message. And that's you, well, you do more than your part. You do my part too. So (laughs) I I appreciate that. Thank you for picking up my slack. Um, so we always end with with the same question. I know we joked about it before we went on the air. It's it's the simplest yet most difficult question that we ask, and we always save it for last. Personally, what Tom and I love from this, it's not so much the plant you choose but the reason why you choose it, uh, and that's what is your favorite native plant? Well, so uh, I've had I've had a, a good long time to think about this one since uh, since right before we got on air here. Um, I would like to reframe the question and answer what is my current plant crush? That's perfect. Love it. Um, because as you, as we mentioned before, it's hard to pick just one and it changes. Maybe it changes daily. Maybe, maybe you've always had a soft spot for something. Um, and so I'm going to start with a broader group, which are our native ferns. And I'm going to drill down to maidenhair fern Ooh. as my current crush right now. Right. And so we're, we're still a little bit further behind in spring than I think, um, you mm-hmm. all are down in New Jersey. And, um, I just love ferns as they first emerge out of the ground and they look kind of like otherworldly and tightly curled and these little geometries and spirals that, that kind of play play inside each other. And maidenhair fern has this really lovely dark sort of dark maroon stem that emerges and then it slowly unfurls and the foliage is almost kind of coppery to begin with. And, you get a nice big stand of it and it just looks so delicately as it, you know, kind of drifts a bit in the breeze and then it expands into this beautiful thing. And and then it's like that for the rest of the season. And so part of, part of why I choose it is because I'm really trying to lean in and appreciate the ephemeral nature of that stage of its life. And so it's kind of fleeting and it's like, even from one day to the next, you'll see they've expanded a little bit more. And, and it's sort of, for me, one of the big reasons to go outside and, 
really slow down and observe plants because they're beautiful in every stage of their life. And if you, if you, if you walk by too fast, you're going to miss something really amazing. That is a wonderful, mm-hmm. that, that hits home for me. Tom, I don't even know if he realized it got me completely this year, more than ever, completely hooked on ephemerals after they did a controlled burn on their property uh, for quail habitat. And there were ephemerals there, but they, the, the, how quickly I, yeah. they came back. And, I don't know and, if it was the burn itself that made them uh, more the more prevalent, or was it that there just wasn't stuff in the way and you could see them better. Yeah. Um, but there, it just seemed like they were really uh, there were so many this year. Yellow trout, lily, and and uh, white white uh, uh, white anemone, yeah, anemone, and, yeah, and, yeah. you know, it's just so many uh, Canada Mayflowers blooming now. So, but it, it it got me out more like every week, and I'm like, what else? They're going to go away. Like I have to yeah. see them. I have to see them now. What else can I see? It's one of the most, I think it's one of the things that makes Northeastern Woodlands so special is this like time in April and May where all this amazing stuff comes up and then it fades away. And, you know, if you don't pay attention, you'll miss it. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, a, a wonderful choice. That's that's one I will remember definitely. Yeah. Um, so this is the, the point in the show where we kind of hand the floor over to you. We do our final thoughts and this is. We give you the time, that, and you use it however you'd like to use it. You can summarize, promote something, uh, mention something we didn't talk about, talk about something coming up at the uh, Native Plant Trust. But however you choose to use it, the floor is yours, and I hand it over. Thank you. Um, well, I will begin again with a heartfelt thanks to both you, Fran, and Tom for a wonderful conversation. Uh, I am completely up for part two awesome. um, uh, whenever we can get that in the, on the books. Um, I think that we've talked a lot about um, promoting the use of native plants in a lot of different contexts. And I wanted to bring up um, this idea of, um, you know, two-thirds native or 70%. This is something that's been um, increasingly kind of bandied about as as a goal for um, folks to aim at. And I think it's great to have the goal. Um, and, and And the reason for it is that every person is on their own sort of journey in pursuit of that, or maybe not in pursuit of that. Um, but, you know, welcoming these plants into your garden is a really easy step to do. And I think you will find um, that making that choice is, is empowering and it's really rewarding when you see what is attracted to your garden and how it feels more like it fits in with the surrounding uh, landscapes by making those choices. And that uh, if you have, um, you know, 20% native, that's great. And you welcome a few more and you keep working yourself towards that goal. The other thing I really like about the sort of two thirds number is that the remaining third is plenty of space for plants that maybe they're not native, but they're good garden plants. They play well and you know, with others. Maybe these, you know, you've got uh, a, a beautiful peony that you inherited from your grandmother that just has this nostalgic connection with your family. Um, there's room for that in gardens. And, and the, really the bigger message here is that we're not trying to be extremists. We're not anti-ornamental, um, nor do you have to be 100% native. But aiming for that 
that goal, the reason that's there is because it's been shown to uh, support the, the greatest breadth of insect life, the greatest breadth of bird life, um, and and all the connections that you might see or not be able to see in a landscape. And so um, I really want to encourage people to to welcome these plants into their into your homes and into your lives. And if you like what happens, feel empowered to welcome more of them in every year. Little steps. You know, great gardens are not installed. They're grown and managed and cared for over time. And you'll find that you yourself will grow along with your plants. So I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Tom, you want to go? Yeah, yeah mine's right. mine's going to be short and, and sweet. Uli, you brought it up earlier. Uh, there was a Lady Bird Johnson quote, and I just want to say it because I I really believe in it as well. And it's, uh, native plants give us a sense of where we are in this great land of ours. I want Texas to look like Texas and Vermont to look like Vermont. In my case, I want New Jersey to look like New Jersey. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I love it. Substitute oh, yeah. your state. That's, yep. It doesn't yep. matter where you are. Uh Mine is kind of twofold. Uh, one, I I love that in this industry, having been involved so long in different aspects or different parts in the industry, I feel I definitely find more of a togetherness in the the native plant industry than I have in any other part of the ornamental hort. And uh, all these messages are are proving community. We we talked about you, you mentioned the increase in education. We saw the native New Jersey Native Plant Society. I think their membership tripled over COVID, um, and it became a sense of community for everyone. Kind of like I had found for myself, like as a vinyl collector, <laughs> twenty years ago in in uh, different groups like Lala and RDO and Mog that no longer exist. They've been replaced by Spotify, but. Uh, be a part of that community. Be a part of the, the solution. We can do it together. It's hard to do it by yourself, but it, there's so much in common with this, and you can all be a part of nature. And it made me think of, uh, since we're talking about quotes, a letter Kurt Vonnegut had written to a high school class just about test yourself, get outside of of your comfort zone just to see what you're made of and just do these things not for profit. And not necessarily even to share with community or anyone else, but do these things just for the sake of doing them, to experience them. And I think there's that – that will help uh, help that disconnect that a lot of people have with nature. <laughs> it's plant a couple native plants, see how pollinators interact, see how birds interact, become part of that interaction yourself and get lost in it and just see where it goes. Not for profit, not for anything else, not for the sake of doing it for the right reasons, just – to be a part of it. And I think that gets lost sometimes, but didn't know I was going to bring up Vonnegut. That came out of nowhere. <laughs> he's, one of, he's one of my favorite authors. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought him up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, cool. Well, that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Uli Lorimer from the Native Plant Trust. For more information, you can visit their website, which is www.nativeplanttrust.org. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume their uh, your music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, or at Pinelands Nursery. You can find us on YouTube also at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And uh, welcome to all the 
the new members of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. We had this huge influx over the weekend, uh, a few hundred new members, and we're happy uh, you're joining our community. Yeah, so you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. There's a link at the top that takes you to our Teespring store, and then there's all sorts of designs. Some of them go to specific organizations, but the ones that go to general groups, we kind of pull that up, and then we give it to organizations that we think are really doing great work, boots-on-the-ground type stuff uh, that can make uh, – it's a small amount of money, but we think it can make a big impact with those individuals. So you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet at our website, but you're probably listening on Apple Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. Uh, if you can, leave a five-star review. Uh, if you do a little write-up with that review, uh, it goes a long, long way, and then it makes us feel good about ourselves. So we're doing a good job. So <laughs> And, and Tom sure, will give you a shout-out. Yeah, and I'll on give a, you a shout-out on the buzz. So And uh, and make sure you subscribed because that also uh, goes a long way with us. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Uli, thank you so much. We're, we're looking forward to having you for a part two. Uh, coming up next week, we have a Buzz episode, so make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.